go ahead and pray one more time. God, like we were just singing, because you died, we are counted free. Because you have made this huge change in our lives, we are new, cre- we are new creatures, new creations. We are no longer who we were, but we, we have a new heart that is no longer made of stone. So God, I just pray that you would continue to call us to be closer to you, to to look more like the church, to look more like the people who are your followers, to look like the people who are chasing after you. And God, don't let our salvation just be a few words we say to impress the people around us or be based on, well, I know this or I live this way or I do these things because God... It's all that you have done that saves us. So God, cause us to rest in that this morning. Make much of yourself during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can start turning to Matthew chapter 21. Um, Caleb mentioned this last week, but these last seven chapters basically take place in a week, right? So, So... As the story kind of slows down, some of these interactions really start to pick up, sometimes in their intensity. It'll get more intense the farther in we get. But as of right now, we're we're getting into this section where Jesus is going to kind of go into town once a day. He's staying somewhere outside of the city because it's kind of like if you tried to get a hotel room in the Tri-Cities area around race weekend, you just can't do it. You can't, you can't find a place to stay in Jerusalem during Passover week. It just doesn't happen. So Jesus has been staying outside of town in Bethany at the house of his friends Mary, Martha, Lazarus. These are names that we're familiar with. These are people that he's interacted with before. So he's staying out of town there. And each day he's kind of coming into town, going to the temple and ministering there. And so last week, we kind of got the first look at Jesus kind of walking in, the people knowing who he is, reveling in the glory of, hey, here comes this great king who's going to save us. And we talked a little bit about how perhaps their view of who he was and why he was there was still a little bit skewed. But, but we saw Jesus coming into town, and we're going to kind of get our first look today at some of the types of interactions that he has throughout this week with with his disciples, with the religious leaders of the area, with the people in general, and we're going to kind of get a picture of... I've got three main points that I'm going to make, and we're going to read about 50 verses to make these points. We're going through a lot of Bible today, but that's because all of these interactions in the rest of chapter 21 and even in the beginning of chapter 22, I think all kind of come together to help make these same three points They just kind of emphasize them in different ways. So instead of breaking this out and doing a seven-week series through the same three points, we're going to kind of get a big big picture look at what these uh, three ideas are that I think um, Matthew really is trying to drive home to the readers as Jesus is interacting with the religious leaders and the people and his disciples. So I'm going to go ahead and give you my three points. They're not on the screen. I'm I'm not as kind as Caleb. But I will read them to you now, and we will come back to them throughout this morning. So here are my three, here are the three thoughts that I want us to look for as we're reading through the rest of chapter 21. Non, the non-fruit bearing, so when I say the non-fruit bearing, the people who are claiming to follow Jesus but are not showing any signs of it. The non-fruit bearing are the ones who are rejected by Jesus. 
That's point one. The non-fruit bearing are the ones who are being rejected by Jesus. Two, the rejected, that is, those non-fruit bearing who are being rejected, are being replaced with the undesirable. The rejected are being replaced with the undesirable. And the last point is, those chosen, the chosen look like the chosen. And all of these are going to kind of start to build to this point. So you have, you have people who, who are claiming to be in, who are claiming to follow God, but they aren't bearing any fruit, and they're going to be the ones who are rejected. They're going to be replaced with people who don't look like religious people. And those people are going to actually be the ones to bear fruit and look like the ones who have been chosen by God to serve them, okay? So those are the three points. I'm going to read a bunch of different passages. We're going to kind of break them up so it's not like 50 verses all at once and you got to try to take it all in. But be thinking through those ideas as we're reading here. So Matthew chapter 21, we're going to pick up in verse 12. This is, again, this is right after Jesus has come into town, riding on a donkey, everybody's singing big loud praises to who, to who he is. This is amazing. Jesus is here. He's going to save us, Right? His first act as, as Messiah coming into the city. Chapter 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So this is day one of Jesus being in town for Passover week. Of the lid there. And like I said, all of these are going to focus kind of on the non-fruit bearing starting to reject Jesus. So the first thing that we see is that Jesus goes into the temple and it's being used as a big money changing house, like a big, a big international funds exchange place, which honestly was, was right to do because you had people who were coming from all over the place, all around the world. The Jews who had been driven out of their home were coming back for Passover week, and they were using different currency that was not accepted in the temple to buy the animals that they needed to make their sacrifices. And so there had been set up in the temple a system so that you could exchange your money, buy the things that you needed for your sacrifice for the week, make your sacrifices, and be, and be right with God. Like, this was a good thing. It was supposed to be a nice service that was available to people. But what was happening is that the religious elite, and I'm going to continue to call them the religious elite, because that's basically how they held themselves, higher than, greater than everybody else who was around them. The religious elite were kind of rising up and saying, we're going to mark up these exchange rates, and we're going to mark up these prices, and we're going to kind of take advantage of these people that have to make these sacrifices on this week so that we can kind of line our pockets and make ourselves a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more wealthy. So a lot of this indictment that Jesus is bringing, he's bringing against the religious leaders who are taking advantage of the people that God has placed under them, which I got to say is a scary thought for guys like me and Caleb and dad who have people that God has placed under us saying, do not take advantage of these people. 
So we see this sin that's being committed externally. Because what they're doing is, like I said, they're marking up the prices and they're taking advantage. But essentially what is happening is they are kind of double dealing. And they are, they are the ones who, who have forgiveness and salvation available. But they're also the ones who are selling the things that they need to be able to get that forgiveness. It kind of reminded me of the first Iron Man movie. Like, like the, whole, the whole villain thing of there was, uh, what was his name? It was Jeff Bridges' character in Iron Man. What was his? The, the, the dude, yeah, what's his name? Anyways, but like he was, he was Tony Stark's like co-CEO. I don't remember what, they were both on the board. But like he was selling weapons to one country and selling weapons to their enemy to kind of continue the war, keep the war going, because when, the, when both sides had lots of their weapons, there was more need for more weapons, so he could keep selling more weapons and making more money. This is kind of the way that the Pharisees and the religious elite were treating these things in the temple. They were like, these people need forgiveness. That means they need doves. So if we sell the doves and we mark up the prices of the doves, we're both the ones offering the forgiveness and the means by which they get it. And we can make a whole lot of money off this deal. And Jesus was so offended by this because what it was supposed to be is like, here, I'm trying to make this available to you so that you can get your forgiveness, so that you can, so that you can repent, so that you can offer your sacrifices. But they're just taking advantage of the people. And it's interesting because the place where this is happening, because it said, uh, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who sold. I don't know if it says the location in this passage, but, but the area of the temple that this was all taking place in was the one area of the temple where Gentiles were allowed to come in and worship. So not only have they kind of demeaned the, the way by which people are coming to receive their sacrifices and offer their sacrifices and repent before God, but they're kind of doing it in the place that kind of pushes the nations out and says, we don't care about the nations, it's just about us. And so Jesus, being horribly offended by this, goes back to the purpose of the temple and he says, this was never what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a place where people who were, who were sick were supposed to come and be made well, right? We see that happening. He starts welcoming the sick and he welcomes the children around him and he says, here, come to me. This is what the whole purpose of this place is supposed to be. Not a place where we can gain a profit, but a place where we can, where we can show God's love and we, can, and we can explain who he is and we can we can say that he's the one who you come to when you are in pain and you are sick. And we see the Pharisees, we get, a, we get our first little glimpse at their heart, right? Because Jesus is doing all of these wonderful things. And these, and these children are praising him for these things. And what does it say that the Pharisees thought? They were indignant. They were frustrated. They didn't like the idea that he was doing all of these things for free, and receiving all this praise for it, and people, people were appreciating that. So, so we start to see the, the, the external sin that was taking place, happening in the temple, taking advantage of the people. And we start to get a glimpse at what's going on in the hearts of the religious leaders. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 18. So Jesus had gone back out to stay at Mary and Martha's house, and he's on his way back in. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, 
if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So here's the first thing we got to realize, just kind of practically speaking. When he saw the fig tree and it had leaves all over, that meant it's the time of the year where it's supposed to be producing fruit. Right, right. All the signs were there that this should be producing some sort of fruit that Jesus could go up and eat because he was hungry. I'm sure we all will be hungry by the time I get done preaching through 50 verses of Matthew today. And you will all want to eat something. And if we say, all right, let's eat something, oh wait, there's nothing there. You're going to be very frustrated, right? We call it hangry at our house. Right? You're going to get really hungry and you're going to be very frustrated that there's nothing available to eat. That's just kind of where Jesus is. Right? Hey, here's a fig tree. It should have fruit. There's nothing. So he curses the fig tree. It withers. The disciples are amazed. Which is hilarious to me that they're still amazed when he does these things. Like, they've been traveling with this guy for three years. They've seen all of these amazing things and yet he tells a fig tree, you're done. And it, the leaves fall off. And they're like, this was the most amazing thing ever. How did this even happen? Right? This is where they are. But here's what happened. The lack of the fruit, there was no fruit on the tree, was a revelation of where the actual health of the tree was. Like, just because it had leaves didn't mean it was healthy. Because the whole purpose of that tree was that it would produce fruit. Having no fruit, it meant that it was dead on the inside. It might have leaves, but it is not fulfilling the purpose that it's supposed to have. No fruit means no purpose. And so kind of the state of the internal, where we are on the inside, this is what Jesus is starting to teach. This is the example here. Where we are on the inside gets reflected by what comes out of us, right? Paul teaches this later in Galatians with his analogy of the fruits of the Spirit, right? He talks about, he talks about there are these, the fruits of the, like, the flesh, like who we are. These are the bad things that come out of us if we don't have Christ. And he has this long list, right? And then he says... And he says, you know, if you aren't in Christ, you're going to have this sin and this sin and this sin and this sin. Like, if you aren't fulfilling the purpose for which you were created, all of these nasty things kind of come out of you. Movie reference number two for the day, and I think it's the last one. I can't promise that I won't end up with another one. It, like, reminded me of, like, Davy Jones' Pirates, right? In Pirates of the Caribbean 2 and 3. Like, because he wasn't fulfilling what his actual calling was. Like, his whole thing was, you're supposed to ferry the dead, blah, blah, blah that part aside. But like, you're supposed to do, a, you're supposed to have this task, but because he didn't do it, he got all tentacly. And they all got all these barnacles, things kind of growing all, right? Like they had these signs on them that were saying, because we are not fulfilling the things that we're supposed to do, because, because there's this, we'll call it sin, in their life, the signs start to show themselves externally. And this was the case for the fig tree. Because the fig tree was dead, because the fig tree had no, nothing inside of it to cause it to bear fruit, it really had no purpose in life. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples that what's inside, what we're seeing on the inside of the religious leaders, is what leads to what comes out. Like the reason they're doing all these bad things, the reason they're taking advantage of all these people is, is because on the inside they're dead. On the inside they're corrupt. On the inside they are broken. But what's cool, and this kind of goes back to Galatians with Paul, 
is that those who are in Christ, they're the ones who start to bear the good fruit. They're the ones that have, ha have good things coming out of them. But like I said, I still think it's hilarious that the disciples are so amazed by this. And, we, and I'm not focusing on this part of the parable because it's not really building to the point that I'm trying to make. But, but the thing that Jesus says to them is that you have this power through the Holy Spirit that you could even tell a mountain to just leave and it's going to get out if that's what I want. And I think that's the important thing for us to remember. It's not that he says you have the power to tell a mountain to do what it wants to do. But whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what he's saying is, if the object of your faith is God and is in his will, the things that he wants to happen are going to happen if you ask them to happen. We've said this before, but, but if, you pray, if you are praying God's will, it will happen 100% of the time. If you are asking God to do the things that he wants to do, it's going to happen. The answer to your prayer will be yes. And I can say that definitively because God gets his way. God gets what he wants. God gets his will. He doesn't have this, here's what I want to happen. Oh, man, they messed it up. That, now I'm not going to get what I wanted out of that. Everything that happens is a part of God's will. And what, what Jesus is continually reminding them is, I mean, in a sense, it's like we could, let's take the fig tree as an example. right? He's saying, it was my will that this fig tree wouldn't bear fruit so that I could come up be disappointed in the fact that it's not bearing fruit so that I could curse it, so that I have this teaching opportunity for you. All of these things are working together because God willed that it would happen. And so when they're amazed at these amazing things, Jesus says, just be amazed at what my will is and that my will gets done. And continue to seek my will, continue to seek the will of God and know what it is that God has planned for you. And then pray for those things to happen. So all of these things that he's still teaching his disciples and he's going to continue to teach his disciples throughout the rest of his ministry here as he's saying, pray for these kinds of things. Do these kinds of things. If we pray that God would empower us to be better gospel takers in our city, he's going to say yes because that's what he wants us to do. So, so we don't have to worry. Is he going to help me take the gospel out? Yes, he's going to help you take the gospel out. Let's go ahead and keep reading. Verse 23. So now Jesus is back into the temple. It says, When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? <laughs> Jesus answered them, I will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he'll say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I love this interaction because I like debate. You can ask my wife about that sometime, and she would love to tell you all the times that I've proven that I like debate, probably more than I should. But this, is, this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees here is a traditional kind of, this is, this is the way a debate would have been organized at this point in this society. Somebody comes up with a question, they're met with a counter question, you give them a response, and then you resolve. Like, that's the way you have 
a discussion in, in AD 30. Like, this is how it works. And so, so these guys come up to him. They say, we've got a question for you. He says, great, like that question. Here's my question. You answer that, and I answer your question. And then they're like, we don't like that question. But why are we getting this interaction? Why, why is it important that we see all of this happening? Well, first, we're trying, we're, we're, Matthew's trying to give us a picture of where the heart state of the Pharisees are, right? So they're coming up trying to trap him. They are going to be trying to trap him for the rest of his life. They're trying to catch him saying something that they can get rid of him for. So they come up, they're asking this question about where is he getting his authority because, because they're trying to catch him in some sort of blasphemy. What if he says he's getting his authority from God or he is God? What if he says one of these things? Well, then we could trap him. So we'll ask him about that. And his counter question um, forces them into kind of a conundrum. And, they, and, you, and we see their kind of internal struggle because they don't think that John got his authority from God. They don't, but they're afraid of the people. Because they know the people really liked John. So, so the first thing we learn is that they're wusses. Like they know what they believe, but they're afraid of the people who don't believe what they believe. So they're, 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 they're scaredy cats. But they also can't say, well, then he got his authority from John and pleased the people. Because, because what was John's whole message? This guy that's coming after me, he's Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the one that we've been looking for. He has all the authority from God. He is the Son of God. He's it. So if they say John got his authority from God, then they're basically having to admit that Jesus gets his authority from God and that Jesus is God. So then they're having to answer their own question for Jesus. Right? Do you see the, I don't want to say trap, but do you see kind of the, the place that he has put them in? So, so Jesus forces them to kind of vocalize their heart state. Like, like, he knows where their heart is. He knows that they aren't, they aren't all in on this. And he knows that they don't believe who he is. They, he knows that, that even though he's given them all of these opportunities to follow him, that they have continued to push him away and their, their hearts continue to be in opposition of him. But, but they haven't necessarily come out and said, we don't get this. And so he puts them in a position where they're going to have to come out and say, we don't know. He puts them in a position where they have to come out and reveal their weaknesses, reveal the things that reveal their cowardice, or reveal, reveal the fact that they have rejected this message that Jesus has been bringing. They're revealing their actual heart state that's been hardened against the truth of the gospel, right? That's the unforgivable sin that Matthew had talked about back in chapter 12. This idea of having your heart hardened against God and not. not not having it changed by him. Living in complete opposition from the will of God. Like, not having the heart. That, that's the thing. And Jesus is putting them in a position where they have to basically come out and say, we're not in. We're not in this with you. So that's kind of why I moved from, we see the external signs of where they were. Like, we see the money changing. We see all of this. And now we're seeing where all that really is coming from. It's, become, it's coming out of their heart. It's what they are. It's who they are inside. And so this unrepentant sin in them is what's going to lead Jesus to teach three parables 
back to back. We're going to read two of them first, uh, starting in verse 28. So he's going to give them this example of who they are. He's going to teach them about who they are as revealed by this conversation, this interaction that they just had. So verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. Sounds like me. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not go afterward, change, you, didn't, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you ever read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Not? Okay, yeah, makes kind of sense. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. I love that he just said, I'm talking about you. And it's like, we think he's talking about us. Sorry, I find that hilarious. So we get these two stories, and this is what's, this is what's kind of making my original couple of points here, right? The non-fruit-bearing are being rejected. He's getting rid of them. He's done with them. And he's replacing them with the undesirable, right? Let's look at that first parable. So you've got two sons. One, he says, and I'm going to use my childhood. Hey, go out in the backyard and pick up all the sticks that are in the backyard. And I say, yes, and then I don't for five years, two years. Eventually, I picked up the sticks. But like, this is, this is that son. He's like, go do it. He's like, yeah, super dad, I'll take care of that. Nothing. The other one, he says, hey, go do this. He's like, I don't want to do that. Like, that's probably the more honest response that I should have had. I don't want to do that. Not interested in that. And then eventually, he goes out, and he does all the work. And it says, which one do you think the father's going to honor? 
And they're like, the one who did what he asked in the end, even though he was honest that I don't want to do that, eventually he went and he, he honored the will of his father. And what Jesus, the point Jesus starts to make is, okay, so, so the one who is seemingly undesirable, the one who says, I don't want to do that, I don't want to listen to you, I'm going to go do my own thing, the one who comes around is the one who's doing the will of the Father. So what he's saying is, you guys have been handed the keys to the kingdom of heaven, essentially. Like, he said, I, you have this ministry. You are, you are to oversee my people seeking my will. I've told you exactly what my will is. Go and act it. And you have said, nah, we're good. You said you were going to do it, but you haven't. Obviously, we've seen the fruit of who you are. But to these other people, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the, the ones that, that the religious people are like, those people are gross. We don't like those people. We don't want to associate with those people, right? Think about it. They, they've called Jesus out for hanging out with sinners for a long time now. And what Jesus is saying is, you're being replaced with those people. Because those are the people, those are the ones who are actually doing my will. Those are the ones who are hearing this message of who I am and are believing it and seeking after me and trying to be more like me and are listening to these things and having their lives changed. So, so, so Jesus is rejecting the non-fruit bearing and now we're seeing he's replacing those who were rejected with undesirable people. So if I was going to sum it up in one way, the church ought to be filled with undesirable people. People who know they don't deserve to be there. People who understand their brokenness and their weakness. People who don't think, I've got this all figured out. I understand this. I've, I've read these three books in Greek. I can actually quote you 17 uh, complete minor prophet books in the original Hebrew. Those aren't the people that are in. Those are the people that are being rejected because they're getting by based on their work. They're getting by based on their knowledge. They're getting by based on their spirituality, not realizing their brokenness like the people who've been in sin and who've been told their whole lives, you're not worth anything. And they're like, you're right. I'm awful. I'm broken. I'm weak. Those are the people that are taking the place of these religious leaders. So the Pharisees' rejection was leading to their replacement. Right? Because, because we see in that second, that second scenario, what God has done is He's basically set up a kingdom, or in this example, a vineyard, and he's left these people in charge. And he said, hey, raise some fruit. I'm going to send some people back. I want to kind of see how you've done. And they get greedy. They start killing the people they send in. Think of all these prophets who God sent and said, hey, you guys need to repent. And they're like, we don't like your message. We're going to kill you. And he says, okay, I'm going to send another. He's going to come warn you. He's going to come say, hey, give God what is his. We don't like your message. We're going to kill you. And so finally, he's going to send his son. Just like God did. He sent Jesus. 
his son, and they're like, oh, this is it. This is our opportunity. We can really, we can really make a profit here. Let's take him out too. And I love that Jesus says, what do you think, what do you think the master is going to do when he gets there? And they're like, oh, those, those guys are going to get theirs. Right? Isn't that, I, like, that's their response. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. They're like, we know the right answer to this one. They're proud, right? Yes. Okay, he's asked a question that we know the answer to. Those are the bad guys. We don't like them. And he's like, you know that's you, right? You know that, that is, you are the ones that I'm talking about. Sorry. I laugh at the Pharisees sometimes, but I probably act like them too. But I love that he's making this point that he's going to get rid of them and replace, and they even said, and replace them with somebody who's going to actually give him the fruit. And he's like, yes, that's exactly what's happening. I'm going to replace them with people who are actually going to bear fruit. And then I love this quote. I think it's from Psalm 118. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So like, they're getting rid, they're trying to get rid of Jesus, but ultimately he's going to be the foundation that on top of that's going to be built this huge church that he's going to build, that we're going to be a part of. The, those who are bearing fruit are going to be a part of. This was all a part of God's plan to begin with. It was a part of God's plan that these, these prophets would come, they would be rejected and killed, and that he would send Jesus and he would be rejected and killed. That was all a part of the plan. Because ultimately, the whole point was that Jesus had to come, had to die for our sin, so that he could become that foundation on which everything else is built. That was it. From the beginning... Right, we've said it before, from Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve had sinned, that's been the promise this whole time. And here, now here comes Jesus saying, this is it, this is the answer. I am that cornerstone that you are rejecting, but this is going to be it. I'm about to be made into the firm foundation on which salvation is going to be built. And I'm going to build it with tax collectors and prostitutes and people who know they're sinners. Because those are the kinds of people that realize they need saving. And this is why the gospel is so beautiful. And this is why I kind of love that our church is not. Right? That's kind of why I love that our church is not, like, super beautiful. Because it's reflective of the kinds of people that God says he's calling to this place people who know they are broken, people who know they are weak, people who know that they have sin in their lives, things that are gross, things that are icky. Because he's going to do something really special for them. Let's go ahead and read one more section. Chapter 22. This is the last parable that he gives to them. I'm going to read this whole thing, starting in verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. 
And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendees, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So this is exactly what Jesus has been saying he is doing. He's got this whole party ready. He's got this whole, this whole means by which we can be welcomed back into the kingdom of God, into the family of God. We can be sons and daughters of God. And he's handed this message out to his people. And his people said, we're good. We're busy. We've got things to do. We're out. I've got a job. I've got family. I've got a vacation planned. I'm going I'm to go do that now. Right? And, it, and it, seems, it seems crazy, right? This is a king who is sending his servant straight to you and saying, you have been invited. The party's ready. Let's go. And they're saying to a king, ah, no, I'm good. I think I'll pass. It's not surprising that the king's like, fine then. I'm done with them. Get rid of them. Destroy them. I'm finished. Go out and find some other people. Just find whoever's on the street. Whoever, right? Go outside right now, walk down the street and say, hey, we're having quesadillas. You want a quesadilla? That's what he's saying. I don't care who they are. Go get them. Bring them in. And so they start doing this. And they're bringing all of these people in. And, and, and it's all of these, again, undesirable people that Jesus is calling in. Undesirable people who don't look like they belong at the banquet hall of a king. But that's who are in here. And so, and so the desirable people who have rejected this invitation are being replaced with the undesirable. And those people are coming in. But, and, and, and then you get to that last paragraph, right? Verse 11. It seems weird that after all of this, the king comes in. He's like, you're not dressed right. If you're not dressed right, get out of here. What's he talking about? What's he trying to say? Because, because it sounds like he's saying, well, when you go to church, you better be wearing your suit and tie. I don't see any ties. Anybody want a tie today? Anybody? No, no suits, no ties, no ball gowns. Here's what he's saying. And we have to understand the context of what would be happening here. When a king would have a party... He would actually provide the clothes for you to wear. So these people are coming in. He's like, hey, welcome to the party. I remember this time. You can go look up this sermon. I don't remember what year it was that Francis Chan preached this. It was at Passion one year. If you go Google Francis Chan, Passion, I want to say it was the last one that we went to, I feel like. So was that 2012? Go look up Francis Chan's sermon from Passion 2012. And I think he actually just did this. Like he had a party and he invited a ton of people over, and he bought them clothes, and he, he got them all dolled up and dressed up for a fancy dinner party at his house. 
Like, go listen to him tell this story. But this is what the king is doing. He was even providing the clothes for the people. So if he's providing the clothes for the people, if he's providing the outer garment these people are supposed to be wearing, what excuse does this guy have for not wearing that garment that he's been given freely? He doesn't have one. He came in and said, I don't want to look like the way the king wants me to look. I'm going to come in on my own terms. I'm going to look the way I want to look. I'm going to do the thing I want to do. And the king says, it doesn't work that way. Obviously, you don't understand what this invitation was. Or you would be looking, you, you would be bearing fruit, here's this idea again, in line with what you're claiming you believe. But, but externally, he did not look like everybody else because internally there was still something rejecting the king there, and so the king sent him out. So I'm not saying we have to wear the right things to be saved. This isn't a works-based salvation sort of thing. This goes right back to the fig tree. This is, you're in the party, you're at the dinner, you ought to be bearing some fruit. You ought to look like you're, you're changed on the inside. That ought to be reflected in the way that you appear externally, and he did not. And so because he, didn't, because he wasn't bearing fruit, the king could tell, you're not really in this. You're not all in, which is the phrase that we've used here forever. To be all in, to be completely committed to the body of Christ, to be completely committed to the gospel, is going to cause you to bear fruit externally. You're going to show this off. It's going to become coming out of you. This guy wasn't all in. So the king said, send him out. He's just like the rest of them. He's just like the rest of them whose hearts aren't in this, who don't really want to be here. And he says at the end of, of that passage in verse 14, many are called, but few are chosen. Like, like this message has been broadcast all over the place. I can stand up here and I can yell it really loud. We as the church can go out and yell it really loud. The prophets through the whole Old Testament had gone out and been yelling it really loud. But very few people had actually been chosen by God. Very few people had actually had their hearts changed by God. Very few people were actually having the gospel resonate in them and change them and make them something new. This is a scary thought because there are lots of people that we come into contact with who say, I got this, I'm in, I'm saved. Oh yeah, don't worry about me, I believe this. They can say, they can say truthy things. They can say churchy sort of things. They can say things that, that in our southern culture we've heard our families say or we've heard people around us say. And this sounds really good. It sounds like something that the Bible would say. It sounds like something that Jesus would believe. But it's not. It's fake. It's false. And there's nothing inside of us that's actually spirit-filled. And there's nothing that's coming out of us. There is nothing that's coming out of us that is reality. There's nothing that's coming out of us that is truly the gospel. We're still dead. We're still broken. We're still empty. And we're still being rejected by Jesus. So we got to be looking at ourselves hard. And we got to be looking at what is coming out of me. Am I taking advantage of people and getting by based on what I know and the things that I do and the good works that I'm able to accomplish? Or do I realize just how 
gross I am. Because, because, because the gospel is for the people who realize just how broken they are, just how weak they are, just how in need of Jesus they are. And our prayer is that we would not only have recognized that is who we are, but that we would revel in the glory of what Jesus makes us. That he welcomes us into his house. He gives us new clothes. He tells us, clean yourself up, sit down, we're going to have a party because you're with me now. That's something to worship about. That's something to sing about. That is something to rejoice in. So let's pray. God, please protect us from the temptation that we face all the time to become the kind of people who are getting by based on their knowledge, their works, or the things that they do. God, it is so easy to get caught up in what it is that we're doing that we think is pleasing to you, that we forget that anything that we do that's good comes from you. So God, cause us to look, take a look at ourselves, a really hard look at ourselves and ask, what is coming out of me? What fruit am I bearing? Am I bearing good fruit or am I bearing bad fruit? God, somewhere in all of these stories that we read today, we can find ourselves. Are we the ones who are confident that we've got it, but yet we're being rejected? Are we the ones who, who God has called and has chosen? And we're starting to bear this fruit. And we're starting to look like the kinds of people who have been chosen by God. God, cause us to think about the things that we say. Are they actually rooted in the gospel? Are they actually rooted in the things that you teach? Or are they just things that we've heard or things that sound good or things that, that keep people from questioning whether or not we're actually saved? God, for those of us who are saved, who are in you, I pray that we would be all in, that we would... We would so revel in the, the truth of what you have made us despite who we were. That we would be so overjoyed and overwhelmed at your goodness to us. That could not help but come out. And God, for the rest of us in here who, who maybe think we're getting by or think we're good, who think we've got it all together. But God, our hearts aren't really in it. I pray that you would not let them just be those who are called, who are hearing this message, but, but God, that those would be the people that you're choosing and that you're going to change and that you're going to give new hearts and new understanding and new desires. Even now. God, for CRC, I pray that you would Make us those ki the kinds of people who revel in what we have become thanks to you and so love people, so love 
the people who are not a part of this, that we can't help but go after them as hard as we can with the truth of the gospel and make much of you in every way that we can in their lives. God, I pray that our worship now would be reflective of the joy that is in us because of what change you have made in us. That what is inside of us would come out. That we wouldn't try to squelch it. We wouldn't try to hide it. We wouldn't try to to shy back because we know what sin has been in our lives or what sin is currently in our lives that we would try to hide from the rest of the church because I don't want them to know how broken I am. God, if if we're broken, I pray that we would show it, that we would grab somebody and we would be broken together because we're all in this the same. So God, make much of yourself during this time of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.